Religion has profoundly influenced the sweeping American narrative, perhaps more than any other force in our history, from the time before European colonization to the present. The Startup National Museum of American Religion is working to build a museum in the nation's capital that will share the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, inviting all to explore the role of religion in shaping the social, political, economic, and cultural lives of Americans, and thus America itself. I'm your host, Chris Stevenson. Join me for our 12-part podcast series, Religion and the American Experience, as we follow scholars deep into America's religious history and learn how it can inform and animate us as citizens, grappling with the complex questions of governance and American purpose in the 21st century. Episodes will be released every Monday between now and the end of the year on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Blacks in America are seared into the national consciousness. Slavery is considered one of America's two original sins, and we've been dealing with racism ever since. I think to many Americans, uh, the black church, quote-unquote, holds some sort of special place in their thinking of blacks and how they are a part of this imperfect yet noble American experiment in self-government. Professor Eric McDaniel is here with us today to discuss part of his book, Politics in the Pews, The Political Mobilization of Black Churches, in an effort to help us better understand this particular part of America's religious history, the role of the black church in American politics. Eric McDaniel is assistant professor in the Department of Government at the University of Texas at Austin. Professor McDaniel specializes in American politics. His research includes uh, religion and politics, black politics, and organizational behavior. His work targets how and why black religious institutions choose to become involved in political matters. In addition, his work targets the role of religious institutions in shaping black political behavior. He received his Ph.D. in political science from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in 2004. We hope listeners come away with a better comprehension of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, and thus better understand the necessity of the idea of religious freedom as a governing principle to America's capacity to fulfill its role in the world. Thank you, Eric, for being with us today. For me, Eric, your book captured at a great, perfect high level uh, the history of the black church in the United States, which helps me put in context our current reckoning with racism in some pretty significant revealing contexts. But also generally, it helps me understand uh, this thread in the American tapestry much better. So thank you for writing it. What led you to write the book? Uh, well, first, thank you for inviting me. Uh, the book is kind of an idea that I developed really my first semester in graduate school. So uh, when I was taking a course, uh, looking at interest groups, and within this course, we talked about social movements, and I thought about the Black church and the, how it's been praised for its activity in social movements, and specifically the civil rights movement. And I thought about, well, a lot of churches aren't active today, so why were they active then as opposed to now? And as time went on, I talked to individuals specifically, Allison Calhoun-Brown, uh, who's at Georgia State, uh, and looking at her work, also the work of Catherine Tate, which has found that when Blacks go to churches that are politically engaged, they are more likely to be uh, politically engaged themselves. So there's something about the institution that's critical to their engagement. 
I began to understand like, why do we have these churches that are engaged and these churches that aren't engaged? And that's really what drove this is uh, we have this idea of churches being engaged, but why are they not? And as I did the research, what I realized is the norm is to not be engaged. Uh, where I had experienced churches that were highly engaged, the norm is to not be engaged. So I was actually in a unique experience. And so the, the way I treated this is if you're used to churches being engaged, why are they not engaged? But if the norm is for churches to be engaged, why are some engaged? And you, I, I noted that in particular during the civil rights movement, uh, and we'll get to that, uh, that the, those, you know, engaged or not engaged, I think we have in our mind that they were all engaged, right? This is sort of, yeah. I think, what we believe about the black church, we being sort of an, an average American I want to ask two other sort of introductory questions to lay the framework here before we get into the different periods of American history. Uh, first, early on um, in the book, you write both of the positive legacy of the black church in politics and uh, also of, and I'm quoting here, the church having not lived up to its potential with respect to helping blacks achieve equality within American society. Could you tell us briefly about those two competing ideas or those two different sides of the same coin? So one of the things, and this is something that I had to confront as I was working on working on the project, is that churches are there, many religious institutions are there to protect the status quo. They, they're not really necessarily there for revolution. So uh, the idea of pushing back against the system is not the norm for churches. They're, they're part of the status quo. And the black church is no different. It's just that the black church has a is has a, long, has a more longer or has bucked against the trend or stood up against um, the status quo more often than other types of churches. So the the normal, I guess the the preset is do nothing, uh, and then it's it's a change to do something. And this is a critique that scholars have given of the black church for for centuries. Uh, so you, and I think Du Bois is probably the best example of this, where he both praises the church and eviscerates the church at the same time, where he says, look at the great things the black church has done, but look at where it's failed. And I think because it's an institution that's so critical to black lives that when it does well, it does really well. And when it does bad, it does really bad. And there are many opportunities that the black church has let pass by. Uh, because uh, because of, for a variety of reasons. One, just a lack of interest in politics. One, a fear of some type of retribution. Uh, it can also be an issue of just not equipped to handle it. But these, the um, unwillingness to react to these situations can cause great harm. You mentioned W.E.B. Uh, du Bois. I wanted to quote something in your book from him that he said in 1903 for the second sort of introductory framing question. Uh, and, and thank you for that explanation. That's, uh, I think that's news to a lot of us probably that the status quo is to do nothing. And maybe if we think about it, that sort of makes sense if we're familiar with churches generally. Okay, so this is what W.E.B. Du Bois said. Quote, Today the two groups of Negroes, the one in the North, the other in the South, represent these divergent ethical tendencies the first tending towards radicalism, the other toward hypocritical compromise. Can you elaborate a little bit on, on those two tendencies? So 
and, and you have this kind of, and this is a kind of a duality that a lot of people have talked about. They kind of talk about this duality of kind of, uh, do we accommodation or confrontation in many ways? Like, do we just accommodate them or the status quo, or do we confront the status quo? Uh, and what you found in the South, and this is really in reaction to kind of Booker T. Washington, uh, his, his Atlanta Compromise speech, but also with the onset of Jim Crow, really the failure of Reconstruction, that Blacks were kind of said, look, we have to keep our heads low. Uh, the pressure's on, and the church uh, went along with that. And many people saw this as a failure of the church to, to not stand up, that this is the church's job. The church must do something about this. Whereas in the North, Blacks had a little more had more freedoms or had more access to education. And you saw them become more engaged. And you saw Blacks getting elected to Congress. You saw them getting elected to certain offices. So there's a little bit more freedom there uh, for the Black church. And this really speaks to the role of the environment, that the Black church in the North experienced a significantly different environment than the Black church in the South. You know, it's important to remember that in many Southern states, they banned the NAACP. Uh, in fact, during slavery, some Black denominations, so certain denominations were banned. So the African Methodist Episcopal Church, so the first independent Black denomination, was banned in many Southern states because they saw an independent Black church as a threat to slaveholding society. Thank you. This this frames it for us, I believe. Now let's start stepping through American history. We'll begin in the colonial period. And, and in this colonial period, you write that the black church didn't really have a strong political presence, uh, but that, quote, much of the framework for the black church and black religion was laid during this period, close quote. Can you provide us some details of, of the black church and the colonial period? So... One of the things that's important to know is this is when you're seeing kind of the Black religious or at least Black Christian tradition being developed. So the idea of a distinct Black church really isn't there because, again, uh, the level of freedom of, of Blacks to associate isn't fully there. But you see the seeds, you know, being sown. And what you begin to see is an early take on religion and the idea of that the religion of the slave owner or the Christianity of the slave owner is not my Christianity. And that in many cases, what was going on is blacks were taking Christianity, but taking it on as their own. And because of that, they developed a divergent understanding of Christianity, which uh, could be at odds with, with the slave master. Now, clearly there were uh, many slaves who believed everything that the slave master told them, because again, as has been pointed out, you know, they were getting two different sermons. One was a, a sermon for the slave owners and one was a sermon for the slaves. Uh, and you did have many black ministers who, because they were able to convince slaves that oh, this is what this is your proper role, that they gained their freedom and gained a great deal of notoriety. But you also had what's kind of the, the secret meetings. Um, and that is where you begin to see this oppositional Christianity form where their take on Christianity is in direct opposition to what the slaveholders are, are stating. And this is where, and again, you saw slaveholders were, were really concerned about converting slaves. So one aspect of it was, you know, if, all, if under God we are all equal, one does that mean I need to free my slave? Um, and so states, states wrote, wrote law saying no, that converting a slave to Christianity, or specifically Protestantism, doesn't mean that you, you need freedom. 
But then there was a concern about what happens when I get to heaven. Will I sleep, see my slave when I get to heaven? Um, and there's also the idea of holy communion, taking holy communion with somebody you see as subhuman. And so there was this concern about associating with these individuals and um, uh, within this religious framework, which says, you know, we're all equal under God. But a second part of this is that the idea of being understood as equal under God may force, may make slaves think that they are their equals. And because of this, they may begin to question slavery. And so there were cases in which slaves have been converted uh, or to part of early rebellions, whether it be a poisoning or trying to run away. There was various things that were going on, which talked, which really saw the creation of a distinct black uh, black faith tradition. Uh, you know, one of the stories that always sticks out to me is we think about Amistad, the, the story of Amistad and the slave revolt. And while the slaves were on trial in, in America, or I guess in the early colonies, uh, they were, they converted to Christianity. And the leader of the revolt, you know, converted as well. And they asked him, now that you've converted, uh, what would you do? You know, would you, would you have killed the captain? And his response is, uh, not that I've converted, I would have killed them, uh, but I would have prayed for the souls afterwards. But it, it clearly showed a distinct, like, okay, I understand this message, but I also understand, you know, my freedom. Uh, and this is what you see kind of being sold within the black church, kind of an, uh, where religion became a, not just a spiritual thing, but a physical thing as well, that being religiously active was spiritually and physically for you. You mentioned um, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, and there's another one, the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church. Were they both created during this period? Yes. Uh, so the AME Church was... Uh, it was created uh, really, I think, the early years of the nation. Uh, and so that's in Philadelphia, or the Amy Zions were uh, in New York a few, a few years later. And they were created because Blacks felt that their experiences in the Methodist church, were they were not being fully respected. So in the instance in Philadelphia, with the creation of, a, of the AME church, uh, Richard Allen uh, goes in to pray, uh, arrives at the service, uh, but he's a little bit late and they're in prayer. So he kneels to pray, but he's praying in the white section. And so as he's praying, he's pulled up uh, and told you can't pray here. And so this is this is a very interesting thing because this is a moment of a, what should be seen as a universally recognized, you know, connection with God. And having your prayer interrupted because you're praying in the wrong place is problematic. And so from there, Richard Allen uh, led individuals out and uh, formed the AME Church. And so the, the church now is, uh, is Bethel AME, or often referred to as Mother Bethel, is actually the uh, oldest piece of land continuously owned by Blacks in America. And so it, this kind of speaks to the importance of, of the Black church there. Uh, and the, in New York, you see AME Zions form out of just frustration of their treatment within the Methodist churches in, in New York. Uh, so this is... Uh, you, you see this kind of kind of coming about. This is where you're seeing the creation of independent black denominations. You're also seeing, you know, uh, black the black Baptist associations coming about as well. But the like the AME and AME side are kind of stick out as the two early independent black denominations. So not just an independent black church, but an independent uh, conglomerate of black churches. That's a poignant story about the creation of the AME church. I had never heard before. Um. Okay, 
Well, let's move now into the period before the Civil War, 1800 to, to 1860. Um, maybe just fill us in with a little bit of detail of what uh, the black church political activity, what, as it was then, uh, what it was, what they did, and, and, and why they did what they did. So here you have two stories. You kind of have the story of the North and the story of the South. Um, so the story of the South was either acquiescence, doing nothing, quiet rebellion, um, and outright rebellion. So if you think of uh, Gabriel Prosser uh, and Nat Turner in Virginia, you think of Denmark Vesey in South Carolina, you know, they were all led under, you know, the under a religious or a moral obligation. And so what you see coming out of the South is either an acquiescence of kind of agreeing, agreeing to it, uh, but you also see some quiet rebellion. And so it'd be things to being sick uh, or, you know, the idea of, you know, the story of one slave uh, stopping to pray in the middle of the field and the overseer is threatening to whip him. You say, look, if you're going to whip me while I'm talking to my God, I'm perfectly fine with that. So it's, it's a defiance uh, in, in that regard. Uh, and then you get, you know, various things uh, or stories that kind of come out of this uh, where Blacks just basically say, yeah, you know, you know, the slave owners are going to hell. These aren't real Christians. And so it's like, just wait until God comes and they'll be punished for it. So it's not a, oh, our slave owners are so good. It's like, no, no, they, they will be punished. What they're doing is evil. In the North, we have a few more freedoms. Now, again, it's important to note that it's not like Blacks were had complete freedoms in the North. Uh, there are various states and localities that uh, while Blacks were uh, told to pay taxes, weren't allowed to vote, and weren't allowed to send their kids to school. And so there were pockets in the North where they found uh, areas to be protected, but the North was still relatively hostile. And you can think of the North at this time as being very much very much like the Jim Crow South. While there were more opportunities than there were um, in the South during this time, uh, what you begin to see is the formation of independent Black denominations, but also you see Blacks joining in the abolitionist movement. So Frederick Douglass uh, is probably one of the critical uh, voices of this. Uh, but you also get uh, a, a numerous other individuals uh, coming into play. So you think of David Walker's appeal, which was a long drawn out uh, argument for that Blacks should rise up against their slave owners. And their slave owners have, you know, have time to repent for their sinful ways. But if they don't, God will punish the nation. And this is, these things are kind of critical because it speaks to the kind of change in the Black church, uh, the kind of militancy you see coming out of the Black church in the North. Now, again, it's important to remember that these individuals were the exception, not the rule. And this is uh, kind of a critical way of you seeing, I'm not saying the difference in the Black church in the North and South, but kind of for years to come, because the situation in the South was so uh, restrictive and so controlling that there were very few options. Whereas in the North, you saw a, uh, attachment to the abolitionist movements, uh, constantly trying to lobby government to end slavery or improve the rights uh, of individuals, but again, still suffering from uh, heavy discrimination. You mentioned in the book, uh, in this time period, what are called slave churches. Uh, and there, there was some criticism leveled at them that they were too concerned with otherworldliness and, and not 
I guess, with, and that they were part of the pacification of slaves. Can you tell us a bit about this concept of the slave church? So the slave church is something that the masters would build. And it was something that they would build. And usually they would have kind of the oversight of whites, but have a black preacher, but um, there'd be white oversight to make sure they were preaching the, the correct thing. And the and this slave church was basically to send the message of the need to be obedient and that you will receive your reward in heaven. And it's very much of a, you'll suffer now, but you will receive your reward in heaven. And this is kind of putting forth the idea that, and again, you see this coming out of many slave owners who try to convince slaves that running away was uh, the work of the devil that God had assigned you to be in this position. And if you refuse to take that position, you have offended God. And that's what you see coming out of these slave churches. Uh, kind of, you know, no, this this is your lot in life. You have, you. Uh, this is what God wants for you. And if you do it right, if you suffer through, God will reward you in the long, in the long run. And so this becomes very otherworldly because they're saying, oh, don't be concerned about what's going on right now. Um, you'll, you'll be rewarded later. And so, in many ways, it was allowing atrocities to be committed and telling Blacks, don't get upset about it, because God doesn't want you to be upset about the atrocity. So it fit into the paternalism approach of the South, right? Very much so. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you for that on, on that period of, the, of American history. We are talking with Eric McDaniel, assistant professor in the Department of Government at the University of Texas at Austin, and author of Politics in the Pews, The Political Mobilization of Black Churches. His research areas include religion and politics, black politics, and organizational behavior. His work targets how and why black religious institutions choose to become involved in political matters. Now let's go into the Civil War and then Reconstruction, Eric. It seems that black churches held back, and it makes sense, from supporting the Union— initially until Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. So tell us, early in the war, what did the black churches do in the North and the South? Uh, so I, I expect in the South, it was an issue of kind of laying low because you see the tensions going on. In the North, they were still pushing for abolition, but there was a lack of trust. It was a concern of like, is this really about ending slavery? Is it really just a fight between white men? That once this fight is over with, we'll still go back to our subordinate positions. And it took a lot of work, specifically like by people like, like Frederick Douglass to convince Blacks and Black religious leaders that, no, 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 this is something you should be engaged in. And this is when you see, you know, uh, uh, Douglass's call to arms. You say, you know, God will never side with the oppressor. Uh, and, you know, with the Emancipation Proclamation, also became really, okay, no, there was something, something will happen. Because, again, we have to remember that Blacks were still treated as subhuman in the North. Uh, like they were in the South. Uh, and so they were given a few more freedoms, but they still weren't seen as equal. The Dred Scott decision, which said Blacks had no claim uh, that, that a white man should respect. You know, this is this is critical. And this is way, something that shaped their, their understanding in the North. And it made them somewhat wary of what they expect to see to come out of the nation. And so because of this, the Black, church, black churches in the North were hesitant to support this because they didn't really know, okay, are you basically going to be using this as cannon fodder or are you going to be seeing this as equals? And then what, what was there a shift, a paradigm shift then when the Emancipation Proclamation was issued? Was it sort of Very immediate? Much so. 
Yes, and I think the uh, I think before the Emancipation Proclamation, you saw quite a bit coming. Uh, but with the Emancipation Proclamation, I think that was kind of a critical turn. Okay, well, you really need business. Uh, and the Emancipation Proclamation was critical in both the North and the South. Uh, so one of the things that Black churches uh, take part in on New Year's Eve is a watch night service. And the watch night service started uh, in regard to the Emancipation Proclamation because the idea was at midnight in the new year, they would become free. And so they stayed up and prayed that what Lincoln said would become true. And so this is kind of where you see the, the watch night service uh, come forward. But you begin to see the black church play a very big role in uh, recruiting people to take part in the war uh, and also in, off, in offering support. And, and again, as the war moves down and you see kind of the, the missionaries coming in from the north, you see the black church coming in at the same time. And this is where you see a boom in independent black denominations because they are able to grow within these in these southern areas as the northern troops make their way through the south. So are these watch night services still held in some yes. black churches? Yes, so it's, it's, a, it's kind of a common practice. And, and it, it's, the rhetoric now does not link itself back to the Emancipation Proclamation, but there's something right. about being in church uh, until midnight with the idea of the promise of the new year, things like that. And if you think about the promise of the Emancipation, uh, the promise of the Emancipation Proclamation being tied to that. Wow. And I did read in your book that, uh, and I'm trying to, I, I tried to imagine it in my mind, but but after the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, black clergy would follow the Union Army, and as they freed slaves, would register them on the rolls of the church. Yeah. And you see a, a massive growth of the denominations. Uh, they almost double in size, uh, almost seems like overnight, because they were able to move to these areas with a large black population. Uh, so you can think of the AME Church, uh, which was banned in South Carolina after DMR BC's revolt, uh, basically becoming one of the central places, uh, one of the main black denominations there. So right now, the AME Church has a very strong presence in the state of South Carolina. And part of that is because of following the missionaries down uh, um, throughout the Civil War. Wow. Super fascinating stuff. So now Reconstruction. Reconstruction started with great hope and it ended with great despair. Can you tell us about the political activities of the Black Church during Reconstruction? So the churches were extremely active during Reconstruction. You see, uh, again, during Reconstruction is a 12-year period where freed men and women, or freed men, let me not say, but freed men are now being elected to office. So you have uh, black serving as lieutenant governor, being chosen to serve in the Senate, even though the Senate won't seat them, uh, to serve in Congress, to serve in the state legislature, to play a key role in writing the new state constitutions. And so you see this hope that blacks can now open businesses, they can they can find something, you know, where where they were banned from this in the past, they were able to do this, and the church was centrally involved. Uh, so the church I grew up in in I'm originally from the St. Louis area, it was St. Paul uh, after Methodist Episcopal Church. The former pastor of St. Paul was chased out of St. Louis for teaching slaves how to read. He would eventually be, you know, end up taking Jefferson Davis's seat out of Mississippi. Uh, and so this is an example of seeing the church involved, the church active, the churches, getting people registered to vote, getting people to turn out, uh, getting them to learn about, you know, uh, learn about you know, what are the certain freedoms? You begin to see a number of historical black colleges and universities being formed in black churches 
because now you have all these newly freed men and women and they need to be trained. And so the black church became a, you know, this a religious social service and political institution. Wow. I, I can just, uh, I can see that in my mind's eye, you know, with the hope of reconstruction, uh, sort of channeling through all those black churches. Then how did they react to the devastation of the end of reconstruction? What and was- here's where you begin to see a, um, a much more militant version of the church. So this is where you begin to see a, well, I, mean, I guess let me take a step back. If you think of black nationalism as, a, as an idea of blacks being able to control their own destiny, the, the, Existence of the black church is an example of black nationalism. It's the idea of we have some something of control over of our own. And what you're going to see now is this black nationalism that moves from kind of community control or let's have institutions that we control to let's have in areas that we can control. Uh, so one Baptist minister proposed, you know what, how about all blacks just move to Texas? We'll still be part of the U.S., but we'll have Texas and you can have the rest. You know, that was the point. Uh, but then you have others say, you know what, let's just immigrate back to Africa. And a primary example of that would be Amy Bishop, Henry McNeil Turner, who led a uh, led individuals back to Africa. He basically said the nation will never respect us, and that because the nation will never respect us, and you know we need to move, we need to leave. It was a disastrous effort, and he he had to come back. But you do begin to see a significant souring with the nation amongst blacks and black religious leaders. Now. It's important to note that Henry McNeil Turner was again a unique individual in this regard because most did not many people push back saying, you know, uh, there's nothing for me in Africa. Uh, just just wait, everything will work out. And then in the South, you see a lot of individuals kind of side with Booker T. Washington and other black conservatives who argue, you know what, let's let's stop all the political activism, let's quiet this, and let's just focus on trade and skills. And this is, you know, Booker T. Washington's famous Atlanta Compromise, where he says, you know what, we, we won't work on this stuff, we'll work on ourselves. And part of this was a survival strategy. Uh, some people see it as kind of a cop-out, of basically saying, of, of giving up. And so there's a lot of tension re- re- regarding that, regarding Booker T. Washington. While he's seen as a hero to, to many Blacks, uh, to others he's seen as a villain. He's seen as someone who gave up the political cause in the South and allowed Jim, Jim Crow to burn rampant. Obviously, him as an individual who saw who saw the danger of Jim Crow and saw what was going to happen uh, with the end of Reconstruction, and he said, "You know what? Let's just keep our heads down so we don't uh, so we won't be slaughtered in the process." Um, Eric, tell us a little bit about the Great Migration and uh, what its effects were on the Black Church and its politics. So, the Great Migration is this period, kind of in the early half of the 20th century, where you see a massive number of Blacks move out of rural areas and move out south to northern areas and urban areas. So you see one uh, increase the Black population in southern urban areas, but also in northern urban areas. So you see the Black population in Chicago, Detroit, New York, uh, Milwaukee, like a number of these northern states uh, just grow drastically over really a couple of decades. And part of the reason of this is one, the racial terrorism in the South. I mean, the constant lynching, uh, the, the, the rise of the Klan, and basically no real checks against white aggression. But in addition to this, there were jobs available in the North, and these jobs were 
uh, available because of World War One, because European immigrants weren't coming over because of the war. They needed somebody to take the jobs, and so blacks went out there. There was a bit of contentiousness over this. So you had uh, many blacks saying, you know, you're leaving the lords of the land for the bosses of the buildings. That leaving the South was copping out. Like the fight is still here. You're leaving. You're 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 leaving the fight. But so this was seen as a chance for education, greater freedoms, uh, and this is the move you see coming out of this. And what you see coming out of this is, one, a massive explosion of churches, Black churches in urban areas. Like, they begin to just swell in size. But also what you begin to see is the development of what they would call storefront churches, where people who are used to being in a small church setting, just you would see that. And also during the Great Migration, as you would see... Um, also, other religious experiences come about. So you see the growth of Black Pentecostalism. Uh, you'd also see, you know, the emergence of Black Muslims. So there'd be a, a significant, you know, change in the Black religious landscape. And one of the key individuals uh, playing a role in this would be Marcus Garvey and his Universal Negro Improvement Association. So Garvey, a Black nationalist who called for Blacks to go back to Africa. Uh, so he was originally from Jamaica uh, and had worked in Central America trying to help uh, Black Jamaicans who are working on the uh, Panama Canal to, for, for their rights, and eventually wanted to come to the U.S. to work with Booker T. Washington. He was a big admirer of Booker T. Washington. By the time he arrived in the U.S., uh, Booker T. Washington passed away. But he worked, uh, and he did a lot of work to kind of organize individuals and basically made a very strong argument of the separation of the races. And from this, he developed his own kind of uh, Within this, you develop a kind of an, a, an African Orthodox church where they say, look, no, we need a Christianity that represents who we are. And much like um, Booker T. Washington was an antagonist of the boys, so it's all the same thing with Garvey, uh, where Garvey's like, no, you know, we need Africa. Africa's for Africans. The rest of this is, you know, everybody has their own links. Whereas the boys is much more of an integrationist. You see uh, Garvey being much more of a nationalist. And you see this taking place in the churches where Garvey was able to recruit out of the churches. And, and so this is kind of important because this would help us understand uh, how things move forward with the, you know, with the NAACP and its actions, but also the civil rights movement and, you know, thinking about the Black Power Movement uh, and, and the role of the church uh, in relation to the Black Power Movement. Yes, that's super helpful to understand some of those future things that we're going to get to. Let's move now to the famous civil rights movement that looms so large in American historical consciousness. Give us some insight, Eric, on really what the black church did and what the black church didn't do during this time that's um, so important to all of us. So um, I guess one of the first things with what they didn't do is that the majority of black churches did not engage in the civil rights movement. So King's strongest opposition came from black church leaders. So the National Baptist Convention actually split because of this. And so the National Baptist Convention of America split and you got the progressive National Baptist Convention, partly because of this. So partly was because of uh, abuses of leadership or concerns over the leadership of the National Baptist Association. But some of it was also in response to their attacks on the civil rights movement. And the best example I can to think of this is if uh, in uh, Taylor Branch's book, the um, I'm forgetting the name of the book right now, but uh, the the particle of the watch, I believe. 
he talks, he starts off with the story of Bernie Johns. So Bernie Johns is an Ebenezer Baptist Church in Montgomery before Cain. Johns comes from a long history of, of activists. And uh, he was, again, very, he was extremely uh, active and kind of uh, a bit inflammatory, a bit radical for, for the South. Uh, he would actually, you know, pass a lot of times, put the title of the sermon out of the, um, out there in the marquee so people could see it. It's like, oh, this is what the sermon will be about this Sunday. And some of them would deal with race issues, and the police department would actually bring him in and say, what exactly is the preacher about? But th- this tells you about the about the level of control over, over the Black church within the South. Even though it was an independent institution, it was independent relative to other Black institutions, that's the best way to put it. Uh, he had tried to start a bus boycott before then. Nobody, members of his own of his own church were sitting there when he, when he was on the bus trying to start this bus boycott, and they just sat there and did nothing. And there was something that kind of changed. And it's important to note that you saw a change, uh, one, in the North, uh, but also in the South. Um, so one of the changes you see in the North is because Blacks, uh, large number of Blacks moved out of the South into the North, they gained a right to vote. And so they're able to elect Blacks to Congress, but also that they influenced the Electoral College. So in order to win the state, you would have to win the, you would have to win the Black vote. So you saw individuals talking about civil rights issues. And it's one thing if somebody running for Congress talks about it. It's another thing if a governor talks about it. But if, you, but if you're running for president and you're talking about it, this is now a national issue. It is now on the national agenda. And so as you see Blacks moving in really into the, um, the Roosevelt coalition with the New Deal, uh, you begin to see a, a much more openness to discussing, discussing civil rights. You, uh, you also have the Brown decision, which, which was critical. You also, and, but in addition to this, you had the failing economy of the South, where they realized they needed normal business, but because they, were, because they were seen as lawless because of all the lynching, there was a concern here. So you actually saw lynching go down, not because they became better people, but because I actually see a change as well. Uh, so blacks in the North and the South, who went off to serve in World War I and World War II, came back with a new sense of citizenship. And a, a great book for uh, to look at for this is Chris Parker's uh, Fighting for Democracy. And what... Uh, Parker highlights in this book is that because of their time in the military, what they learned in the military, but also the experience in Europe, is this idea of like, you know, I would not come back and be treated as a second-class citizen. And they were demanding their citizenship rights. And so a primary example of that is, is Megar Evers, uh, who was shot and killed in his driveway in Mississippi for trying to get, for trying to register blacks to vote. And so this, and along with this, you see higher levels of education and the there's a growing sense of efficacy. And it's not like blacks woke up one day and said, no, this Jim Crow stuff is bad. It's that they felt like there was nothing they could do about it. There was a sense of hopelessness. Now you're seeing, basically the hopelessness is giving out to rage. It's like, no, something must be done and we must act on this. And this is what you're seeing King tap into with the, uh, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, but also with the Montgomery Bus Boycott. So King is, and and uh, the people associated with them actually actively went on what they referred to as consciousness raising to it, and where they're actively trying to get people to realize that no, you should be fighting against this. You have a religious obligation to do this. And 
the, really the miracle of this is that people believe it. Not, not that people believe it, but that they believe it and were willing to take part in nonviolence. That's the key thing about it. Because there was already something that was tearing away at their soul inside. And King kind of made it very clear, kind of pulled it out and made them look at it. So they had to directly confront it. And, when, and you know, the idea is men, women, and children were broken down in tears because they saw how they had allowed themselves to be dehumanized. And if they are, you know, God's children, they cannot allow this. So they've, been, they've offended God by allowing themselves to be dehumanized. And from that, you begin to see this swell of, you know, people need to get out there. They need to be engaged. But it's important to remember that King was the, um, was unique in this. He was, you know, many churches would say, you know, we're going to stay out. Uh, we're not going to do anything. And I was, and one of the things that, that, that points out to this is a lot of this was the members. Uh, I remember I was in South Africa, and this was shortly after apartheid ended, and I was talking to some ministers there. And they talked about how their members did not want them to uh, take part in the anti-apartheid marches or in movement because they'd feel embarrassed for going to have to bail their pastor out of jail. And so it's, it's this thing of like, wait a second, apartheid is just evil. And the pastor's fighting against it, but you're worried about, about uh, bailing them out of jail. But this was something that was going on to it, it was going on as well. Uh, but again, you had pushback even from like NAACP. So Thurgood Marshall said, all oh, this march is not going to do anything. What you need to do is work with the courts. And there was, there was pushback. Uh, King was seen as a radical. And so they, King's fight was not just with Jim Crow. It was other was white religious leaders as well as black religious leaders. But the religious message mattered. It resonated. And this, this is critical. Um, and this is what, what happened with uh, other groups. So the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, when they were recruited, you know, they were actively, they would call people out. But you can't, how can you sit in church and sing songs about how God's going to protect you and God's going to see you through and then say you're scared to register the vote? You're not really the Christian the type of Christian you say you are. Uh, there would be examples of where, you know, they would have a meeting in a church and pastors from out the area would be there. And they would be called out as cowards before God in front of the entire group of several hundred people. And they would people just sit there and jeer and laugh at them. And so the church became a place where not only the members were held accountable for becoming active, the, the leadership was too. And so this is where you see a change and the church become much more engaged. Well, churches become much more engaged uh, in, in this in this regard. Now, looking back upon it, people say, "Oh no, the black church was engaged." Not fully. There was still a lot of pushback. There was a lot of concern about what well, you're making the situation worse. And and you know, this is something that King had to deal with. Right? He said, "Look, you know, I have to do this." The letter from the Birmingham jail, I think, is is a great example of this. It's a response to a letter that white ministers wrote, but it could easily have been said to black ministers as well. That's fascinating. I don't think I really uh, understood uh, that that uh, detail of, of uh, the black church sort of pushback. And, and I can understand it, right? Because a minister probably feels his first duty is to keep his people safe. And, and yeah. this looks like my people are not going to be safe, right? So there's some understanding, I guess, right? And what you're saying is Martin Luther King's job was to help them break through that and see the religious message that remains, right? That's there to to engage with 
despite the fear. Yeah, and, and so he has a lot of, uh, so I think one of his classic sermons, like, but if not, where he talks about, where he, he basically says, you know, if you really are the Christian you say you are, you're going to go out and do this. And it's uh, it's basically kind of challenging them. It's, it's challenging their, their, their commitment to Christianity uh, in, in that regard. And, you know, King even said, you know, a religion that is, that is only concerned about their soul is not concerned about the things that damn them in the real world is a dry as dust religion. And this is, so he said, you know, religion is not just an issue of what happens to you after you die. It's about, about your life. And that a true religion is concerned about your soul and your afterlife and as well as your present life. At the apex of the civil rights movement, what percentage of black churches were behind him? Is that a fair question? I would say of those who are actively engaged, I, I think the number is really more around maybe 15, 20 percent um, at best. Now, there may have been some who were sympathetic but didn't do much. They may have given money or things like that. But I would say it's really more about uh, maybe about 15 percent that were active. And, and again, they had a right to be scared. I mean, think about the bombing of Birmingham, the Bears Church bombings that were going on. There was a right to be to, to be afraid. And. Uh, so there was part of that, but also a part of it was like, well, these are just radicals and uh, a lack of trust. One of the things that uh, Parker points out is if you look at the individuals who are most supportive of the civil rights movement, you found that veterans, that black veterans are actually more supportive than others. Uh, others thought, oh, this is just chaos. Black veterans like, no, this is something that needs to be done. And so between these changes in the black community are what sparked this. And the church did play a role was a partner with everybody else. Church wasn't necessarily the leader, but was a partner. And I think that's what needs to be changed, is we make it look, oh, it was all about the church. It's like, no, like many churches had to be convinced to do this. And so they were more more like partners as opposed to uh, true leaders and, uh, and entrepreneurs in this case. Let me read, I, I want to get to um, uh, post-1960s, but let me read quickly, uh, something that the National Conference of Black Churchmen issued in 1969 as we are leaving that decade. Quote, The demand that Christ the liberator imposes on all men requires all blacks to affirm their full dignity as persons and all whites to surrender their presumption of superiority and abuses of power. Close quote. What did this represent and what were the effects of this ideology on the political activity of the black church moving into the 70s and 80s and beyond? So here's what you see is much like where you people are responding to the failure of Reconstruction. I think what you're seeing is kind of a, this is after King had been assassinated and this idea that racism is so baked in that Americans will never uh, give up. And you see the rise of Black nationalism. And so if you think of the Black Panther Party, but other groups that, that formed with spaces that look, We'll just have control over our communities. We, we will work with you, but we will have control over our communities because we don't trust you to do right. And you, what you have being formed at this time is black theology. Uh, and so the, the uh, primary uh, figure for this would be James Cone, who, who recently passed away. And what Cone argued is that basically if you, that to identify with Jesus is to identify with the oppressed. And if the black people are the oppressed in America, that to identify with Jesus is to identify with blacks. Anything else means you're not identifying with Jesus. Uh, and so here you have the argument, again, this is very similar to what you saw with Henry McNeil Turner, where you are, you know, God is a Negro. 
about this idea that God is black. And the reason why God is black or Jesus is black is because God is on the side of the oppressed and we are the oppressed. So we see ourselves, see ourselves in God. Thank you for that final word. Been very helpful. We have been talking with Eric McDaniel, assistant professor in the Department of Government at the University of Texas at Austin and author of Politics in the Pews, The Political Mobilization of Black Churches. Our discussion centered around the political activity of the black church throughout American history, which helps us better understand today's reckoning with racism and race relations generally. We hope listeners come away with a fuller comprehension of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, and thus better understand the necessity of the idea of religious freedom as a governing principle for America to fulfill its role in the world. Thank you, Eric, for sharing your expertise on this important topic. Thank you very much for inviting me. The podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, is a project of the National Museum of American Religion. Episodes are released each Monday starting October 19th, 2020 through the end of the year on Podbean under Story of American Religion, Apple Podcast, and Spotify.